Well, why do the book of Revelation? Why in, in life is complicated enough right now. Why take on such a complicated and difficult book? Well, we said last week, and I'm going to say it again, that I truly believe this, that there is no book in the Bible that presents Jesus as clearly, as powerfully, and as realistically of who Jesus is right now for us and for his church. So in light of all that we're going through, in light of, gosh, natural disasters and pandemics and social unrest and constant division and polarization, I, I, I truly believe this, my, my dear family, that what we need most right now is a clearer, bigger picture of Jesus, of who he is for us, who he is now, and who he stands for heaven, in heaven forever for us. So we talked about this last week, that Revelation is at least three things. It's a letter, uh, it's a prophecy, but above all, it's an apocalypse. Remember what uh, apocalypse means, kids, remember? Uh, it means a revealing or a disclosure or a lifting of the lid. And most of all, it is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It is an unveiling of Jesus. This book is not meant to confuse, uh, but to clarify. It's not trying to obscure, but disclose. It's not concealing, but revealing. The message of this book is things are not what they seem. There is more going on than meets the eye. This book wants to radically disrupt, overturn your normal way of seeing and perceiving the world and give you a different perspective on reality. And I said it last week, and I'm going to say it just about every week. This book will not change your circumstances but it will change your perspective on your circumstances so that you can have strength to patiently endure. Did you see that, that phrase in verse nine? That's one of John's most favorite phrases, that you may patiently endure. So today, um, as you just heard Blanton read, we're getting into the first real kind of wild image of the book, and it's a vision of Jesus. And before we jump into unpacking that vision, what I want to do is say just a few more introductory remarks, things that we didn't get to cover last week, that will help us understand what this vision of Jesus is all about. So the first thing that I want to talk about with you is the structure of the book of Revelation, the structure of Revelation, right? Just like if, if you were working on one part of a building, like if you were working on the HVAC system, you would probably be really helpful to see the blueprints of the whole building, in the same way, it's really helpful to see the whole structure of this book before we start diving into individual portions. Now, the book of Revelation, and actually Ed Satterfield has done a really incredible study on the Revelation. I, I learned a lot of, of this from him. Um, the book of Revelation is divided into seven portions, seven sections. You can see this on the slide. Um, each one is a vision of Jesus, a vision that John is given by God, and each of the seven sections is divided into seven segments. So the first, chapters one through three, is the seven lampstands, and then four through seven is the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets, the seven signs of conflict, the seven bowls of wrath, the judgment and victory of the Lamb has seven uh, sections, and then the new heavens and the new earth has seven sections to that as well. We mentioned last week how important the number seven is to John as a number of wholeness and completion. You can see just how crazy is about that number. He bakes it right into the entire structure of the book. It's really a brilliant literary masterpiece. Now, the big debate, which is a huge debate in the world of people who read the book of Revelation, 
is how to understand these sections. Okay, do we understand these seven sections as happening sequentially at some point in history? That's called the sequential view. Or do we understand these visions as telling the same story again and again in different perspectives? That's called the parallelist view. The sequential view, parallelist view. Well, I'm just going to tell you that my view and the way that I'll be teaching and preaching this book is the parallelist approach, that each of these visions is telling the same story again and again in a different way. They are parallel descriptions of the same time frame, which is the time frame between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. These are the two great events that determine, for us as Christians, that determine the locus of our reality, when Christ came and when he will come again. And each of these seven segments tell the story of history between these two events. Each of them ends in judgment, and each of them tells and retells it in a different way with a different perspective. Let me just give you an illustration here that might help. You've probably, if you've ever watched sports, you've probably seen like slow motion action replays, right? Football, NFL football has started. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the NFL f- football, but I'm just so desperate to watch sports. I just watched some football games last weekend. And I watched, I especially enjoyed watching um, the Saints versus the Buccaneers because I'd like seeing these two quarterbacks who were my age trying to make it on the field, um, which is just amazing, right? So like there was this one play where um, I think the, the Bucks were, you know, attempted to score, and it was a very difficult play to see whether the, whether the receiver had actually crossed the goal line because the ball was crossing the goal line just as he was stepping out of bounds. And so they played it one time, and then they played it again from a different perspective, and then they played it again from a different perspective, and then they played it again from the camera that is like hidden inside the cone, and then they zoomed in on the football even closer. And I just want to use that as an illustration that this is very similar to what is happening again and again in the book of Revelation, that these sets of seven are showing the same time frame of history, first from one perspective, then from another perspective, then from another perspective. And as they go out throughout the book, they intensify, they zoom in and get even more intense as you get to the end. And so this really helps us understand the book a lot better, that you're not supposed to piece it together like some big jigsaw puzzle trying to construct this complicated whole. It's more like a a music video where you see the same artist uh, singing the same song, you know, with uh, different points of view. Sometimes she's wearing different outfits. Sometimes she has different scenery behind her, right? It's just like that. Revelation is performance art. It's opening our imagination, helping us to understand history through the lens of God. Well, now you might ask, well, isn't, isn't Revelation all about the end times? Isn't it telling us about what's going to happen at the end of the world? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, yes, there's a lot in Revelation about what will happen when Jesus conclusively comes and returns to earth as judge, when God judges all of evil and restores the creation merging the heavens and the earth. So, so technically there is, and, and actually as an aside, Christians don't believe technically in the end of the world. We believe in the new beginning of the world. And so it's not even really 
appropriate to say that. Um, and so in some ways, Revelation is about the end. However, that's not the only thing Revelation is about. Revelation is about right now. It's about the struggle between the people of God and the powers of evil right now. It's about what Jesus is doing right now to care for his church, to protect and empower his people. The end times, the end times, according to scripture, is the entire period of history between the first and second coming of Christ. It's not just the time like right before Jesus comes again. We, along with all the believers who have gone before us since the ascension of Jesus, are living together in the last chapter of history before God comes to judge and to redeem all things. Because Jesus is reigning and coming again, the end is always near. It's always upon us, even if it's chronologically far away. So what time period of history is Revelation talking about, class? Is it referring to things that happened in the past, many years ago, right after the ascension of Jesus? Is it referring to things that are happening right now in the current present? Or is it referring to things that are happening one day in the far off future when Jesus comes again? Yes. <laughs> yes, all three. It is telling the story, this time period between the first and second coming of Jesus, but it's telling it in seven different ways, seven different times to open our imagination and give us a viewpoint of history from the lens of God. All right? Get it? Clear <laughs> structure of the book of Revelation. Okay, second, let's talk a little bit about the imagery of Revelation because uh, we're going to get into the first kind of wild image today. So we need to understand what do we do with all these images and symbols in this book? There's colors and numbers and angels and demons and blood and beasts and ghouls and ghosts and all, you know, well, maybe not really, but there's, you know, all these weird things. And this is where you get into some really wild interpretations uh, and, and differences of opinion. In fact, I love the quote from, uh, the famous quote from G.K. Chesterton, the British essayist. He said, though John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so terrifying as one of his own commentators. Uh, <laughs> it's just fantastic. So what do we make of all of these images? Well, the key to understanding apocalyptic literature is that it is, hear me on this, it is descriptive rather than propositional. It is trying to give us a picture rather than teach concrete ideas. It is not out to give us new information, but capture our imagination. Does that make sense? I love this quote from Eugene Peterson in his fantastic book on Revelation, Reverse Thunder. He says this, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in law and prophet and gospel and epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. Do you understand what he's saying? It's not disclosing some sort of new secret information about the world or about Jesus. It's giving us a new way to see the world with the information that we already have. Think about a poem. Poems are not meant to give you new information like an essay or an article. It is meant to stir your emotions and your imagination. Let's give an example. Here's a proposition. Making decisions is difficult because to choose one option is to forego the other. 
That's a proposition. Got it? Now here is poetry. Two, were, two roads diverged in wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that made all the difference. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between a proposition and poetry? Something happens there in your imagination. Or think about this. I could say, the recent fires have devastated huge portions of the West Coast. You might read that in a newspaper article, right? That's information. On the other hand, I could show you this photo. I could show you just this. Just look. Now, you already know that there were fires, but what happens when you see that? Your emotions are stirred. Your imagination is opened. You feel something differently. See, this is what Revelation is seeking to do, not to give you more information about Jesus and the gospel. We already have the rest of that in the whole Bible. It's trying to stir your imagination. Every marketing executive knows this. Truth conveyed in imagery transforms people much more powerfully than truth conveyed in propositional language. Imagery does what words alone cannot do. It goes beyond the intellect, through the emotions, into the imagination. And friends, that's what these early Christians needed. Everywhere they looked, they were surrounded by images, images of Caesar, Temples to the pagan gods of Rome, religious architecture and iconography and statues and festivals, all conveying this message of the Roman imperial power trying to shape their vision of the world. And so what these early Christians needed was not just new information. They knew that Jesus was risen from the dead. They needed a new imagination to see reality differently. Hear this, these words of theologian Richard Bauckham. He says, Revelation provides a set of Christian prophetic counter-images which impress on its readers a different vision of the world, how it looks from heaven itself. The visual power of the book affects a kind of purging of the Christian imagination, refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and will be. Is it? Oh my gosh, I love that phrase. A purging of the imagination. And isn't that what we need to? I mean, we are just bombarded by images, images that shape our understanding of what it means to be beautiful and healthy, images that influence our pursuit of happiness and pleasure and satisfaction, images that form our notions of what it means to be successful and powerful. These days, oh my gosh, in election season, we're bombarded with images that are meant to form our view of the world based on this, these political machinations of human power. See, we too need a purging of our imaginations to see new images of true power, true beauty, true glory, real truth, that we might live faithfully in this complex and confusing and sometimes oppressive time and place. And so you see, when you read a section like this one that we're gonna look at today, that's full of these crazy images, it's not meant to be interpreted literally, it's meant to fire and stir your imagination. Jesus doesn't literally have a sword coming out of his mouth right now or have feet made of bronze. That's like super uncomfortable, right? I mean, and you know this intuitively. When you look at a political cartoon, let's look at this political cartoon together. No, 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 one, no one thinks that this is a, a historical occurrence that the cartoonist is capturing, that there was like a dragon that attacked the city of Hong Kong. No, this, is, this was a cartoon that came out uh, last summer uh, that in this case is conveying truth, communist China's suppression of capitalism in Hong Kong. That's what it represents. 
It's the same way with this book. These, these images are meant to give us a new imagination, a new emotional experience of reality, because in the light of all the other heavy emotions right now, this is what we need. Remember what apocalypse means, a revealing, an unveiling. More is going on than you realize. Things are not what they seem. You need your imagination purged. Okay, so now let's get into the vision of Jesus. Let's just look at this vision of Jesus. What does this mean? John has ex been exiled to this prison island of Patmos. He's having a, uh, he's, he's almost having a quiet time. He's having a personal service of worship on the Lord's day. He's by himself so that, you know, he's just worshiping with me, myself, and I in the Trinity, I guess. And he suddenly hears a loud voice behind him, and he turns to see. And what does he see? Look with me at the text. He first sees seven gold lampstands. We learn later in verse 20 that the lampstands represent the seven churches. Remember, the whole church of God. And you're going to see here and throughout the whole book that John's visions are packed full of Old Testament references. In fact, listen to this, kids. The book of Revelation has 404 verses in it. Guess how many references there are to different Old Testament verses. In 404 verses, how many references to the Old Testament in the 404 verses. Can you guess? Can you guys guess? How many? 400? 518. 518 references, individual references to Old Testament scripture. Every single sentence is like, has a little invisible hyperlink in it. And if you click on it, you would get immediately taken back to some other portion of the Old Testament. So in this case, you seven lampstands. There's a little hyperlink. Click on it. It immediately takes you back to Exodus 25 and 27 in the temple, the tabernacle of God, suggesting the church is the new tabernacle, the new temple where Jesus dwells through his spirit. And so he sees the seven lampstands of the seven churches, and then he sees this image of Jesus, one who he says is like a son of man standing among the lampstands. And he begins to describe this person, and he uses, you guessed it, seven distinct descriptions of the person of Jesus, each that are parallel with one another and make a pyramid point at the top. So first, number one, his robe is down to his feet, a priestly garment of authority. That's from the book of Daniel. Two, his hair is white as snow, a symbol of wisdom and purity. Daniel, the book of Proverbs. Three, his eyes are blazing with the capacity to see and judge the human heart. Four, his feet are like glowing bronze. There's a hyperlink there to Daniel 2, where the worldly kingdoms are described as having feet of iron mixed with clay, compromised, unstable, compared to Jesus' kingdom, which is strong and unfailing. Five, in his right hand are seven stars. And in the Greco-Roman world, the stars and planets were thought to control human behavior and nations in history. But this person is holding and controlling the stars themselves. Six, a sword comes out of his mouth representing the power of his word to judge and to save. And seven, his face is blazing like the sun in all its brilliance. Almost all this imagery comes from the book of Daniel, chapter seven and 10. Two powerful images are there in Daniel. One is the Ancient of Days, which is a dramatic picture of Almighty God. And the other in Daniel is the Son of Man, which is a human figure representing God's people and humanity to whom is given all power and dominion on the earth. And in this vision, this is really crazy, but in this vision of John, these two distinct images from Daniel, the Ancient of Days, Son of Man, 
are fused together, merged into this one fully divine, fully human person who is standing dramatically among the people of God in cosmic power and glory. Now remember, you're not supposed to like logically work this out in your mind. John's not appealing to your logic, but to your imagination. No, I mean, notice all the times he uses like. He's using more likes than a valley girl, right? Like like wool, like blazing fire, like the sun, like bronze. You know, his own imagination is so stretched. He is just grasping for similes and words. And I just want you, friends, right now, I just want you to let your own imagination be stirred. Would you just close your eyes with me for a moment? I know it feels weird and awkward, especially if you're by yourself, but just close, just close your eyes for a moment. Imagine, imagine these eyes of flame staring straight at you, into you, through you. Imagine standing beside a massive waterfall so loud you can barely hear your own yell. And imagine that that thundering noise is a human voice echoing all around you. Imagine his face shining so brilliantly that you cannot even look at it, like the danger of staring into a thousand suns, so blindingly bright and pure. Can you see it? Okay, you can open your eyes. This is an apocalypse. It's a disclosing, a revealing. More is going on than you realize. And what he wants you to see more than anything else is this, the person of Jesus as he is now in all his power, in all his glory and authority. Let your imagination be purged. Let the curtain be pulled back so you can see what's really going on. Let the eyes of your heart be open to see Jesus as he is, risen, reigning, triumphant in glory, right here with you, for you. It's the vision of Christ. So what should we do with this? How do we respond to this vision? How should this change us, change our perspective on our reality? Let me close with these two quick applications. First, there's a challenge here, a challenge. When John sees this vision of Jesus, he falls at his feet as though dead. See that verse 17? This is the only appropriate response to somebody with that much grandeur and power. This is what happens to people in the Bible when they meet God. Their worlds are shattered. They fall on their face. And this challenges us because I think we often don't think of Jesus this way. Uh, Tom Skinner, um, who's now with the Lord, he was a Presbyterian pastor from Harlem who grew up in Harlem. Uh, He wrote this wonderful book that I love called Black and Free. Uh, And he says that growing up in church, um, he used to talk about how growing up in church, he would see uh, Sunday school pictures of Jesus. And you know about all those Sunday school pictures of Jesus are like, you know, Jesus is there, you know, looking like this, uh, you know, skinny white guy, perfectly coiffed, hair, manicured, you know, standing at the door and knocking. Um, And Skinner said he looked at those growing up in Harlem and he thought to himself, I don't know who that guy is, but all I know is he wouldn't last 10 minutes in my neighborhood. (laughs) And this is kind of the Jesus that we often imagine, right? Like it's loving, approachable friend who we can have a personal relationship with. And of course it's true, but John here warns us against imagining Jesus as just this cozy figure who makes us feel happy inside. To see Jesus as he truly is right now, I'm telling you, friends, would drive us not to snuggle up to him, but to fall at his feet as though dead. This Jesus, the real Jesus, (laughs) I mean, he'll last in any neighborhood. In fact, the real question is, will the neighborhood last with him? Because here he is as he is truly 
He is a towering and furious figure that cannot be managed or controlled. He is the controlling center. He is the last word. He is the living one. He is the one with all authority who holds the stars and planets in his hands. And what do you do with a person like that? You surrender. You fall at his feet. You give him everything. You don't just, you don't ask a person like this just to help you out with your problems and bless your family and you know, pray to him every now and then and otherwise ignore him? No, it, you, don't, you don't try to get a person like this into your life. You try to get your life into his. You don't try to ask someone like this to be your, your, you know, your assistant to help you out with your agenda. No, you, you want to get your whole life and agenda aligned with his. You don't dabble with a person like this. You either run away screaming or you surrender everything, but there's no middle way. And that's one of the great themes of this book is total allegiance to Jesus. When you see Jesus as he truly is, no other allegiance can supersede or compete. No allegiance to family, no allegiance to country, no allegiance to any leader or political party or to a job or a cause or commitment. Nothing can take precedence over the supremacy of Jesus because to see him as he truly is, is to see him as the one who rules everything and asks for all. Have you seen Jesus like that? Have you, have you ever laid on your face on the ground, prostrate before the cosmic Christ? Because that's one of the only appropriate responses when you see Jesus as he truly is. So there's a challenge, but there's also a great comfort here. Great comfort, because, you know, imagine being a Christian at this time in the late first century, and you're huddled in a house, and you're terrified of the authorities, and you're worried about the state of your family, and you're wondering if this whole thing is worth it, and you've seen friends and neighbors in your church dragged away and torn up by lions and, uh, you know, had their limbs torn apart, and the, the power and violence of Rome seems so unstoppable and permanent, and it sure doesn't look like Jesus is reigning. It sure doesn't look like his promises are true. But then, at a little home church meeting, you get this letter from this guy named John, and you hear it being read, and you see this image of Jesus in your imagination, and the curtain is pulled back, and you see him in his splendor, controlling history, holding the stars, running the universe. You see him as the only ruler of the only lasting kingdom, and then you hear him say, verse 17, do not be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead. And I'm alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. The one who has all the power, who holds the planet, who is terrifying in his splendor, is also the one who says, I died for you. I was judged for you. I went to hell for you, all so that you could now have my touch, have my presence with you right here. He's no absentee landlord. He's not up there in heaven somewhere far off and removed from your struggles. He is right here with you, walking close to you in your doubts, in your struggles, in your pain, in your sorrow, in your confusion. He is saying to you, look at me, look at my love, look at my power. Things are not what they seem. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Can you see how this would change your perspective, your experience? John, a prisoner sitting on a rock, in the middle of the ocean, cut off from his family and friends. As far as he can tell, the gospel has been weak and powerless. The church is almost extinct. 
Nothing in his circumstances have changed. Nothing has changed in Rome. The only thing that has changed is that he has been given an image of Jesus and that has changed everything. Because he now knows in a deeper new way that Jesus is powerful. Jesus is reigning. Jesus is near. Jesus holds the keys of life and death. He now knows in a deeper way than ever before that nothing can separate him from the love of Christ. The difference between John, the depressed prisoner, and John, the courageous overcomer, is simply this, a vision of Jesus. So what about you? What prison are you in? What island are you on? Are you afraid? Are you alone? Are you discouraged, feeling cut off? This is what you need, friends. A bigger vision of Christ, a clearer picture of Jesus, to see him in his power, to see him in his tenderness, to hear his voice say to you, do not be afraid. Let's pray that God gives us a vision of that voice. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for this book and for the way that it pulls back the curtain on reality that things are not what they seem, that though this world feels so out of control sometimes, uh, and it doesn't feel like we will see peace and justice and righteousness on the earth. Thank you that Jesus is reigning and he promises that indeed his peace and justice and reign will come. So help us to have eyes of faith to see Jesus as he truly is and give us a changed perspective on our current reality, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.